Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good morning. God, it's a, I'm so happy to see all these seats filled. When I walked in 20 minutes ago, I saw lots of green chairs, and here you all are. Um, thank you very much for coming. My name is Matt Fry. I am the Europe editor, Channel 4 News, and presenter of the program um, on occasion. And uh, I'm very honored to be hosting a debate today about a subject that none of you would have de dealt any time with discussing, and that is <laughs> Europe. Um, and obviously, we've got the vote coming up, and we'll be talking about Brexit plenty uh, in this session. But I also want to talk about, we want to talk about the wider issues of Europe. Um, questions of migration, of political extremism, populism, the elections are coming up that have just been how scared we should be or not scared, you know, whether the, what state, what is the health of the European project today? That's uh, what our panel is here to talk about. And I'm happy to say that they are all from Cambridge University. Um, Chris Bickerton is the lecturer a lecturer of politics at Cambridge, and he's just written a book called The European Union, A Citizen's Guide. Um, which was very well reviewed in the Financial Times on Saturday. And I urge you all to go and buy and read, as I will say about every book that I'm introducing today. Um, Brendan Sims, he's the professor of the history of European international relations at Cambridge University. His book is called Britain's Europe, A Thousand Years of Conflict. There's a, an optimistic title. <laughs> and... Um, Katharina Kasia, um, born German, like myself, she's a political researcher at Cambridge, and her subject is political extremism, and Maddie Abbas, research assistant at the Migration Project at Cambridge University. So first of all, a big hand to all of our speakers. Can you, the hands are waving in the back, what does that mean? Can you hear me? You can, okay. That wasn't a wave meant for me, by any chance. <laughs> now, what we're going to do is that each of them is going to give a, a short presentation, shortish presentation, and then after that, we're going to open this up to questions from the floor. Um, and I want you to be as engaged as possible, uh, given the importance of the subject that we're about to hear about. So first of all, um, Brendan, I think you're first up with your, with your speech. Would you like to come to the stage? Well, thank you very much for that uh, kind introduction. Um, I'm an historian, so if I'm going to express a view about the future, I'd like to start uh, with the past. Um, my book was mentioned. Uh, its full title is, in fact, A Thousand Years of Conflict and Cooperation. Uh, I, I, I think that's... Because it was just far too mild. So I'd like to start with two propositions. First of all, that the EU was designed to deal with the German problem and the European question, or if you prefer, uh, the German question uh, and the European problem, because, because in my view, they're one and the same. And the second proposition is that it was not designed, the EU was not designed to deal with the British problem. <laughs> Why was the EU designed to deal with the German question and the European problem? It's to do with, and I've talked about this in my book, uh, Europe, uh, The Struggle for Supremacy, uh, it's to do with the importance of Germany the size of Germany, the location of Germany, the power or the potential power of Germany. And this is not an argument about German behavior, although for part of the 20th century it is. 
Uh, it is a question of structure. But the German or the European problem goes beyond simply Germany. It is to do with the propensity uh, of European states and European peoples to end up in conflict uh, with one another. You all know that perfectly well. The history of the 20th century of the two wars uh, shows this. So the European project, the project for uniting Europe after 1945, develops out of this. It is a project of dual containment. On the one hand, to embed Germany in European structures, to avoid a repetition of the first part of the 20th century, uh, and also to contain uh, the power of the Soviet Union. That's the reason why we have the European project uh, in the first place. That's why we end up uh, in uh, most of Europe with the euro, the common currency, which is designed uh, to decommission uh, Germany's uh, nuclear weapon, which is the Deutschmark. It's why we end up eventually with the single market, uh, the Schengen passportless uh, travel system, uh, and so on. This Europe is designed, uh, the European project, is designed to diffuse those tensions. So Europe, European history, uh, was the problem, uh, and European integration was the answer. Now, if we turn uh, to the United Kingdom, it's obvious that that's not the case. Yes, and I argue this in my book very strongly, Europe is the primary structuring factor in the history, first of England and then of the United Kingdom. Europe is a threat, beginning with the Vikings, through uh, the difficulties with France in the Middle Ages, of course, later on, under the revolutionary, in the revolutionary period and under Napoleon. Europe is an issue, of course, as we all know, in the 20th century uh, with uh, Soviet communism uh, and Nazism. So Europe is a threat, but this threat is mastered through state formation. So you could argue that England uh, is essentially, the formation of England about a thousand years ago uh, is a reaction to the Vikings, and certainly the formation of the United Kingdom the uh, marriage, as it were, the joining together of the English and the Scottish nations and parliaments in 1707 is a reaction to the European situation. It is designed to contain uh, Louis XIV's uh, France. So, to put it very briefly, uh, Europe may be the problem, uh, but the answer is not European integration. The answer was the United Kingdom. That is why we have the United Kingdom. So, given this background in the last two minutes, where... Uh, do we go from here? Well, what we have to note is that the European Union is an incomplete union. It has federal aspirations. It wants to do things which are really the preserve of a single state, i.e. have a single currency, have a passportless travel zone, a single external policy. But it's only given itself the instruments of a confederation powers uh, relating to the interrelation of sovereign states. And that can't work, and we've all seen uh, the uh, results in the crisis of the euro, which is interminable, in the migration crisis, because you can't have a common travel zone without a common external uh, and policed boundary. And you cannot have a common foreign policy, which at the moment is not deterring Mr. Putin and other aggressors. Now, all this is not a problem for the United Kingdom as such. In my view, the United Kingdom is one of the, still the great powers of the world. It can defend itself. It is not dependent on the European, European Union to do that. But, uh, the, but the United Kingdom will be, will be affected by the backwash uh, from the failure of the European project. And so what I would argue in conclusion is that the only possible answer to this predicament is full continental political union 
in confederation with the United Kingdom. In other words, mainland Europe, the Eurozone, uh, and its additions, needs to do what uh, the English and the Scots did in 1707 and form a, a tighter union with a single currency, a single parliament, uh, and foreign policy. Because if it doesn't do that, we will end up in a neverendum-style situation. If the United Kingdom votes to leave uh, on the 23rd of June, which I very much hope it doesn't, that will shatter uh, European self-confidence. It will encourage separatist tendencies. If it doesn't vote to leave, and I leave you with this thought, Europe will continue to come back as a European integration project. So the question will keep on being asked again and again unless it is resolved through a single act of state formation uh, on uh, mainland Europe. So the answer, this is my last line, is not a European Britain so much uh, as a British Europe. Thank you. Thank you very much. Katarina, your next step. Hello, everyone. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here today. And I have followed the discussion about Brexit so far very closely. And of course, you can imagine that for people who have migrated here and who are working in the UK, it is a very different process than for people who have been born in this country and have lived here forever. And I found it very striking that the discussion was dominated by uh, conservative politicians, male politicians, and also a lot of right-wing voices in that discussion. And it is interesting to see that a lot of the people who now call for Brexit have actually, have actually benefited a great deal from European integration. Nigel Farage is a really interesting example for that because, of course, he is married to a German lady, and this lady came to this country under the laws that he now wants to get rid of. So in some ways, I thought, this is a rather striking development. And, and it's quite similar with Boris, Boris Johnson and other people who have been particularly loud in this discussion. And I think it's nice to have a platform today to talk about some of the aspects that don't receive a lot of attention in the media. And my own research focuses on right-wing extremism and political extremism in Germany, but of course also in other European countries. And what we see there is really, really worrying. We see the rise of a new right, both in uh, Parliament um, and on the street. And in Germany, we have the Pegida marches, people who are calling themselves the people of Germany, uh, campaigning. We have parties like the AfD, the Alternative for Germany, uh, openly um, expressing extremely racist views, for instance, even about German soccer players. And we have uh, these kind of phenomena in a lot of European countries right now. If you look at Austria, of course, the elections were really, really alarming. We have the Danish People's Party in Denmark. We have France, uh, Front National. So it is a very European phenomenon. But the interesting fact that we see when we study these movements is that extremism, right-wing extremism, is particularly strong in areas of Germany where you actually don't see a lot of migrants, where you don't see a lot of refugees. It is particularly deprived areas of Germany, and it is areas where people don't meet anyone else. They don't meet people from other countries. They don't meet other European people. They don't meet immigrants. And, of course, I am working in a department of modern languages, and I know what an extremely enriching discussion we have in this context. 
Uh, and I know that diversity is something that has a hugely positive effect on right-wing attitudes. Because if you start to work and live with people from a range of backgrounds, you can appreciate that in a way that is actually not a possibility for many other people. And what we see in Germany now is really that we can make a real difference if we work to a different Europe. Because nobody says that nothing is wrong with the European Union as it is. But as a German people, I, can, uh, I think as a German person, and uh, knowing a lot of German people, I can appreciate all the developments that Brennan has just outlined. Uh, a German history that was one of conflict and war. Um, and my grandparents, of course, remember all of these things very well. But here I am today, and you're listening to me, and I know that my English partner is in the audience, and I think that there is a project of working and living together, which is much bigger than just a discussion about business, and I think this is something that should be part of the discussion that we have today as well. Thank you. Chris? Okay, good. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, it's a pleasure to, to be here. Um, I spent the last couple of days up in the hills not thinking at all about the EU referendum, back down uh, with a bump today. Um, now, uh, something which both sides uh, of the, the referendum campaign have, t have done so far is that they've wildly exaggerated what the European Union actually is. Um, those on the Remain side tend to suggest that if the UK uh, leaves the EU, the UK as a constitutional framework will collapse. Um, they also suggest that there'll be some kind of global conflagration. Uh, David Cameron intimated, without a lot of subtlety, that there'll be some kind of, uh, uh, possibly even World War III. Um, now that is a gross uh, exaggeration. But on the other side, on those who argue for leave, they also exaggerate what the European Union is. Um, they tend to suggest that the European Union is a super state that is trampling on our democratic freedoms and the only way in which the UK can preserve itself as a, as a, as a free country is to leave the, the European Union. Now that's an exaggeration as well. Um, people often ask me to explain what the EU is and this is the way that I try to, I try to explain it. The EU, we can think of it a little bit like a mirage. Now, we all know how a mirage works. Um, you see it in the distance, it looks very clear, but when you get closer, it starts to shimmer and eventually it, it disappears. The European Union is actually very much like that. Um, seen from here, um, seen from uh, other national capitals around, around Europe, seen from Madrid, seen from Paris, seen from, from Warsaw, from Berlin, it looks like something which has its own institutions. It has its own laws, it has its own officials. It has the capacity to even to close down um, a country's banking system. It seems like a very powerful thing. But as you get closer to Brussels, as you get closer to the heart of the European Union, this mirage starts to shimmer, starts to tremor. And when you get very much at the heart of Brussels, at the European quarter, it disappears altogether. And what do you find? You find your own ministers, regularly traveling to Brussels to make decisions together. You find your own officials filling the Eurostar, filling the Talis, filling the TGV, coming to Brussels on a weekly basis and crafting and shaping EU legislation. And you find your own heads of state, your own prime ministers, Angela Merkel, David Cameron, Matteo Renzi, together in Brussels uh, making decisions with one another. So at the heart of the European Union are really our own governments. 
So this begs the question, why all of this elaborate framework if that's actually the heart of the, the European Union? And this, I think, is, is the answer. Governments today in Europe do not feel as if they can rule on their own. They do not feel as if they can rule alone. Now, the explanation that we tend to have for this is that we're in a global, uh, in a global world. The, the challenges that we face are global in nature, and no, no country alone can manage those, uh, those challenges. I think the explanation lies somewhere else. I think governments across Europe are facing a profound crisis of authority and a profound crisis of legitimacy. Over the last 30 years or so, democracy in Europe has been hollowed out. Politicians have retreated into the state. Citizens have retreated into their own private sphere. And what's left in the space uh, is, is essentially a void, a big gap. And the challenge for politicians in Europe uh, uh, today is how to govern across this void, how to govern across this, this gap. Now, the way in which they do that is the European Union. The European Union is a structure that allows governments to manage, not to solve and not to overcome, but to manage uh, uh, this crisis of democratic authority, this crisis of legitimacy. Now, that explains, I think, a lot about the European Union. It certainly explains its secretive nature. Can anybody in this room put up your hand if you know what the term trialogue or the term Antici protocol means? Two people. <laughs> Very good. Anybody else? Now, these are fundamental uh, concepts to understanding the way European laws are made, but generally people don't know about them. Now, I'm not going to go into it now. It is all in my book if you're interested. Um, <laughs> the EU is a secretive organization. Um, and the reason why is that it's managing this underlying crisis of legitimacy um, that governments face in, in Europe today. So just to finish, um, where do we go from here? Okay. Uh, uh, what is the, 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 the fate of, uh, of the European Union if this is really at the heart of it, this crisis of democratic legitimacy? Um, now, my own feeling is that the UK referendum is the tip of the iceberg. Um, whether the UK decides to stay in or out will have important ramifications for the UK and for the rest of the EU. But we live in an age where many people want referendums across Europe. The Dutch have just had a referendum on a particular association agreement that the EU signed with Ukraine, and they rejected it. The Dutch want another referendum on the trade agreement uh, called TTIP. Um, if the Italians were to get a referendum on the euro, my bet is that they would vote to leave. Um, if there were referendums held across the whole of Europe, I don't think we could actually predict which way it would go. So the European Union, in my opinion, is a little bit like the cartoon character that's running and running and running, and it gets to a cliff, and it keeps on going. Um, and there is nothing underneath, and it's not looked down yet, and the question is, when is it going to look down, and what happens when it does? Underpinning the European Union is this crisis of authority. There's a big gap. Um, and when it looks down, I think it will fall. Now, let me just leave you with this final thought. Is that a pessimistic scenario? Well, it depends about whether you think change is a good or a bad thing. If you don't like change, then yes, it sounds like some sort of catastrophic and very pessimistic scenario. But I think the time has come for the European Union to change. Um, and I think it must change if it wants to, if it wants to survive. Uh, so I think this idea of a fundamental rethink about how European countries collaborate with one another, how they organize their relationships with one another, is a very positive thing. And it's a historic opportunity for us in this country to reflect on what that relationship might be. Thank you very much.
<laughs> okay, Maddie. Thank you for joining me today. Um, my aim today is, um, is not to provide solutions, um, since Europe um, will always, I would argue, be in process of becoming. Um, never settled, never quite unitary, but rather multiple. Um, and that, I would argue, um, is where we must look for productive reimaginings um, this of being multiple, relational, of being able to live alongside one another without fear of being displaced, deported, assimilated, or even eradicated. Um, and it is this philosophical position of being multiple, mutually entangled, rather than receding to our insular autonomies that I want to put forward today. Um, autonomy seeks to dehumanize by encouraging us to see others as different from us, rather than enabling us to see our mutually entangled humanity. Um, and when considering the future of Europe, what has been framed as the refugee crisis, of which there are multiple, um, I want to begin with a story to help situate um, what I'm talking about. So the year is 1990. Um, John Major is about to replace Thatcher as Prime Minister. Um, it is summer. Um, there are two children, a girl of eight and a boy of 12. The girl lived a privileged life in southern England. She had access to excellent schooling and housing and all the latest technology, Game Boys a Super Nintendo. The boy had come from Iraq to have a heart operation. He stayed with her and they became fast friends. They did everything together. He liked all the things that she liked and doing all the things a carefree child likes to do during the holidays. He stayed for a couple of months long enough to perfect his English, but unable to remain in England, he returned to Iraq. When she went to say goodbye, he could not look at her. He was too sad knowing that the life he had enjoyed here, he would never be able to return to. She did not understand why he turned away from her. When her mother explained, she felt very sad. She felt a border had been built between them that, they had never, that she had never felt before. She wanted to run to him and hug him, but she could not. The wall was there. She could not cross it. She knew she had to let him go. She knew that she might never see him again, although she was too young to really understand the world he was going back to and the horrors that he would have to endure. She found it difficult to understand why he should have such hardship when she did not have to struggle to be in the world like he did. It did not seem fair. The only difference was that her father had taken a different path. He had fled Iraq in 1973. He had crossed the border and made it into England. He sought asylum as a political refugee, remaining stateless until eventually achieving British citizenship in 1984, two years after his daughter, his second child, was born. Over the years, she often thought of the boy, wondering what he would be like now. She did not hear from him except the occasional letter which described the awful conditions he and his family were experiencing under sanctions. When the Iraq war broke out in 2003, she feared for him. His life was threatened from insurgents because he had worked with the Americans during occupation. 
She knew she, he had chosen to work with them because of his desire to return to the privileged existence enjoyed in the West that he had glimpsed during his childhood. Desperately, he tried to seek asylum. Eventually, after years of trying, he succeeded. He now lives in Sacramento in the US with his mother and wife. Many of his family are still in Iraq, some of whom have been tortured by insurgents. Some have narrowly missed bombs. Having lived in fear during the Iraq war, many of them now fear the horrors of ISIS or Daesh. His aunt is a refugee in Turkey. Unable to move to Europe because she is told that no more refugees are being admitted, she waits in hope. Her life is not a life, not one that you or I would recognize. It is a stalemate. I tell you this story because it informs my position as both an academic and as a human being. The little girl in the story is me, the boy is my cousin. Our plights and trajectories are different, but our paths, once physically, but now symbolically and emotionally, remain intertwined. It is this productive entanglement that I hold on to, this being multiple, neither self nor other, but simultaneously either or, that helps me navigate a new imaginary, a transformative politics of transgressing divisions of European and non-Europeanness. Europe and Europeans are facing an existential crisis operating at the ontological level, the level that concerns our being in the world. We might also call this the level of cosmology. As teachings in all faiths tell us, at this level, concerns of sanctuary and salvation are at the core. If we move to the middle level, that of governance and bureaucracy, we are met with manifest stumbling blocks. Here is the convergence of securitization and criminal justice frameworks for organizing how we deal with refugees, what is termed in academic literature as crimigration. Crimigration is devoid of moral content. It is not concerned with human rights, but focuses instead on issues of security and control. At this level, Refugees are no longer people, but are security problems that can be fenced off from us. The dangers of this approach are poignantly captured by this photograph. The repeatability of this image, what Criselda Pollock and Max Silverman term concentrationary memories, remind us that rather than being an exception of Europe, such treatment is not only part of Europe's history, but cannot be consigned to history. Worse than this, the history in which England and its allies countered inhumanity experienced in concentration camps under Nazism, through the failure of our policies in inaction, we are complicit in reproducing. Faced with an anonymous mass, where we are told ISIS terrorists can easily hide, we are encouraged to, to not, not to connect with the multitude of faces that stare back at us. Instead, we are encouraged to see them as threats that will overwhelm us. At the next level, the local level, we are asked to consider how the resettlement of refugees might affect my locality, my family, me. Writers have talked about the politics of our knees for describing the current moment of increased securitization. I would argue that we are also seeing a sociality of our knees. Under counterterrorism and immigration legislation, citizens have been enlisted to be border controllers and counter-terrorism agents that have encouraged us to be distrustful of one another. Not only is there a border for refugees before entry to Europe, 
but there are internal borders in all aspects of civil society. Our pursuit for security has meant that refugees' lives are increasingly insecuritized by the threat of deportation to a life that they fought so hard to flee from. But there is also hope at the local level, and we see this in grassroots campaigns such as Refugees Welcome. The local or individual level, which was the starting point of my discussion, can be where change begins. Personal stories can move us. And we saw this from the, the picture of the body of the three-year-old Syrian boy, Alan Kurdi, which circulated around the world. What is necessary is for the local or individual level to interfere with the ontological, cosmological level, since that, that is where our higher order values operate, and that's where the border as an administrative security apparatus can be transformed as we move to ontological considerations of what it is to be human. And this image from Simon Kneebone excellently depicts what I'm discussing. The question, where are you from, involves an ordering, the imposition of a border, and with that, the apparatus of security, criminal justice, immigration controls, crimigration, and subjection to dehumanizing processes of detention and deportation. Moving to the ontological, the level of the human intervenes in bureaucracy, challenging us to think beyond the border, just human from Earth. Who we profess to be securing ourselves from are the same enemy for those who are fleeing. My aunt in Turkey fled the same terrors that Europeans fear entering Europe, ISIS. But if we see the refugee as an enemy, as irredeemably other, we reproduce the binary that has historically structured race premised on divisions between Europeanness and non-Europeanness, where the refugee, because of their religion, ethnicity and or culture, can never be fully European. The question of the border and how we conceptualize and enforce it is crucial to the future of Europe. The border for me has always been multiple. I am English, yet not fully, Christian, non-practicing, but with Muslim heritage, white, but not quite. The individual local level is our starting point, since it is where we view the world from. But we need to move through the tyranny of bureaucracy that forces people to live in camps that the European Union from its inception, was premised to guard against, conceived as it was in the wake of the horrors of Nazi concentration and death camps, and prevent them from being repeated. We need to move to a higher sphere, one where what divides us can be transgressed, and we can live coextensively with others, and recognize that we are driven by ethical and moral values that connect us all, and which we all deserve. Compassion, safety, and the ability to flourish. Thank you. Okay, thank you, buddy. Um, okay, so there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there, and I'm going to open up the floor to questions in a second. But I'd first of all want to ask one myself, if I may. Um, I'm, this, I think you mentioned it, Chris, that there's really very little debate in Europe, on continental Europe, about the nature of the crisis. And it's interesting because the only debate that's really going on about the future of the EU is in the one country that might be about to leave it, <laughs> this one here. And the, when I go to Berlin or to Rome or Madrid, and I hear politicians or intellectuals talk about our country and what we're going through at the moment, it's very much, oh, that's the Brits doing their own thing. They're being a bit weird. They're being out there. 
They are very off-Broadway off when it comes to this. But actually, we're the only ones, I think, who are really grasping at all these diff difficult issues. Okay, so that was a bit boring and a bit of a spiel, so let me ask my question. <laughs> um, do you think, and I'm going to ask you all the same question, do you think that there will be an EU in 10 years' time? Chris. So you're absolutely right, Matt. Um, the EU, um, or in the rest of Europe, the question of you know, the, the future of the European Union is not always posed in a very direct way. And the reason why, I think, is the following. Um, powerful, confident institutions are capable of self-criticism. Um, and they're also capable of reforming themselves. You need some solid foundation in order to change. I think the European Union is a fragile institution, lacks that self-confidence, and therefore any comment that is of a critical nature is seen as being just an attempt to get rid of the whole thing altogether. Um, to be a Eurosceptic um, is to be anti-EU. Um, and we don't use that language when we talk about our own governments. You know, if I criticize the incumbent government, I'm not known as a Westminster skeptic or a, 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 an Anglo-skeptic. I'm just a critic of the government. Um, so the EU is particularly fragile. Um, that, said, that said, let me answer your question. Um, I believe that because the European Union is so central to the way in which governments understand and exercise their own authority today, I do think in 10 years' time it will still be there. Okay. Katerina, what do you think? Well, I guess it's going to be very interesting to see what's happening in the next few years, but I certainly hope that there will be a European Union, and I think I agree with you, Chris, that um, we have to decide whether we want this to happen, and I think it's not a yes or a no, yes, the European Union is great, or no, it's horrible, but it's yes, but. Yes, we want it, but we want it to be different, and I think as citizens we all have uh, a responsibility as well to change it and to pressure our politicians to make it a better European Union. But do you think it'll exist in 10 years' time? I think it will. I hope, I hope so. Maddie. Um, yes, I do think it will exist, but I think that it needs to have a, a reimagining. Um, I think that it cannot exist in, in its current form, and we, we see that with what is happening with uh, refugees and, and, uh, and migrants, um, there has to be um, a, a different approach. There has to be um, a responsibility sharing in, um, in terms of um, how we're going to deal with um, the the issues that that we were facing, those issues are not, not going to go away. Um, so I think um, then there needs to be a um, a stake in um, in the European Union, um, but there needs to also be a um, a, re a refashioning, a re-identity um, that uh, that can accommodate these okay. new social issues. Brendan, yes, I, I think there will be a European Union. I don't accept the standard narrative of the Union, which is that it is inevitable, um, that uh, it must always progress and survive. There are many examples from history, Poland, Holy Roman Empire, Yugoslavia, Soviet Union, of policies which have disappeared for one reason or another. The problem I see is that it cannot survive simply by, in Chris Bickerton's uh, image, simply by treading water, uh, mm. to mix my, my metaphors, over the cliff. Um, it, that so is a mixed metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that is actually what it's doing at the moment. Yeah. Um, and if it doesn't move forward on the lines that I've outlined, which is single debt, single parliamentary representation, single army of the continent, it cannot work. And it, but if they go back, it's not simply the breakup of the European Union, 
here I'm less optimistic in some ways uh, than, the, than the Eurosceptics. It means the end of the European order as we know it. It means the revival of the German question. It means the inability to, to deal with Mr. Putin. Every certainty on the mainland will be uh, up for grabs. Not the United Kingdom. You truly, I'm Irish, I can say this, you live in a truly blessed plot. The question for you is, will you be unaffected by the resulting fallout? And that I rather, rather doubt that you wouldn't be. But just to be clear, what you, are, what you said in your, in your introductory remarks is that unless we stop, the European Union stops being this halfway house, this Heath Robinson contraption, mm. and it either kind of unfolds itself completely or becomes some sort of coherent superstate, mm -hmm. if I may use the term, mm -hmm. it's not going to exist. What we're seeing at the moment is the failure of the halfway house. Yeah. And it cannot go back to the national state. It was designed because of the failure of the individual national states in continental Europe over time, particularly in the 20th century. So to break up the European Union, to go back to the national currencies, means return, as I say, of the German question. It means people like the Greeks. You know, it's often said there's fiscal waterboarding and so on. The Greeks have voted to remain in the, United, in the uh, European Union because they believe that Europe is a better perspective than their own national politics. And they're right. You know, they, they know that Greece or Spain or whatever was the problem. Europe was the solution. That's obviously not the case for the United Kingdom, but it is the case for a great deal of continental so Europe. So Europe can't live with itself and it can't live without itself. That's a fantastically optimistic... Uh... <laughs> That's really going to get the Brexit people on side, isn't it? Uh, okay, now, we've got questions in the audience. Before we do this, I'm going to do something you're, you're all going to hate. I'm going to ask you all, and you, know, you can keep your hands down, but I want to know what I'm dealing with here in terms of the audience. Okay, so who is in favour of Brexit? Hands up. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yes, I see you waving your hand. Don't worry. Okay, there's only one hand. It's one hand is one hand. Who's in favour of Remain? Okay. And most interestingly, because there are so many hands here, who doesn't know yet? Okay. Which is actually not much smaller than the Brexit crowd. Okay, fascinating. Um, first question, yes. I want to know whether... Wait for the mic, please, yeah. I want to know how you think that uh, the EU is going to cope with a looming crisis in the Italian banks. And uh, the bad debt ratios in the Italian banks are going to make Greek issue seem like the peanuts that it, that it is. But could that be the crisis that makes the EU have to look down over the cliff? Okay, who would like to take that one? Chris, yeah. go on. Um, <coughs> so... People always talk about the economic consequences of Brexit. Um, I think the UK is quite a resilient economy. I think the reason why people are worried about Brexit is that they're asking themselves the question, who's next? And the who's next question applies to countries like Italy. Um, now, the Italian economic situation is very dire. Uh, since Italy joined the Eurozone, its average GDP has been zero. Um, now, it's been in the Eurozone for quite a long time, and the economy has not grown. Um, and if you're an Italian and if you lived through that period, you've seen your country, relatively speaking, go, go backwards. Um, now, at the moment, uh, the Italian banking sector um, is off the news agenda. Um, what's difficult, I think, is that Italy um, has 
proposed various solutions to trying to take some of that bad banking debt off balance book, off balance sheets, and create a, a separate bad debt bank. Um, but it can't do that within the euro. Um, uh, so Italy is stuck within the eurozone, which limits the kind of things it can do as a country on its own. And the eurozone as a whole deals only with the eurozone as a whole. It doesn't deal with the, the conditions in individual countries. Um, so for members of the eurozone, these countries are in a bit of a trap. They can't go backwards and they can't go forwards. And what Brendan was suggesting about, I don't know, some sort of single kind of Eurozone treasury, there is no political support in any of the Eurozone countries for the kind of integration needed to make the Eurozone viable in the long term. So the only way it can happen is by circumventing national populations and doing it via the back door in a slow and incremental way. That may happen, but I don't think that's a good solution because people don't like feeling as if they've been hoodwinked. Um, so Italy, yes, is a big problem, but there are broader problems within the Eurozone, which I think could also um, uh, uh, break it apart. Okay, Again, we've got so many questions. Um, lady in the middle there, uh, with the white blouse. Okay, fine, and then you're next. Okay. Um, Keep it snappy, sorry, because we've got only 18 minutes left. And okay, the, um, the first speaker said that the Euro Euro was designed to contain Germany and particularly its nuclear weapon, the Mark. Um, I wondered if you could elaborate a bit more on that because it would seem that the Euro has made Germany even more powerful, certainly over Greece. Okay. And um, do you think it's politically acceptable to have the kind of Europe-wide union that you envisage or would it be more acceptable to have sort of regional Europe regional unions confederated with each other? Good question. Brendan. Thank you. Well, I, I think that you've put your finger uh, really on, on the original debate around not only the euro, but even European integration uh, between this country and France, or be, to be more precise, between uh, Margaret Thatcher and, and uh, Jacques Delors, because uh, Delors argued the only way you can embed and contain Germany was through greater integration and the euro and other measures. And Thatcher said, no, you will simply empower Germany. And an argument you often hear today um, is that that is actually what happened. I don't entirely share that view, um, because nobody who observes present-day Germany can think that they're actually in charge everywhere in Europe. Uh, what's happened is, is that nobody is really in charge, because what we have is a confederal system. So the largest state, Germany, and under a confederal system, has, has additional strength. Try to imagine um, a United States, which was not a union with an elected president, uh, a congress, and, and so on, but rather was a confederation of state governors, that you would then end up with California and Texas and so on having disproportionate uh, influence. So we've designed the worst possible system. It does make the Germans more powerful than was originally intended, but they don't actually have the overall authority to push through the measures that are actually necessary to save the whole thing. So, hence my point. We are in a, in a halfway house. On the regional associations, I don't think they would work because, you know, there's a lot of talk about a two-speed Europe, northern or southern Europe. The minute you define continental Europe in that way, I can see the attractions of it for the United Kingdom, the minute you define continental Europe that way, anybody who's south of the Germans knows they're in they are in loser's Europe, and they will not want to be there. So it's got to be one Europe and one system. Just very briefly before we move on to the next question, 
the fact that nationalism is rising just about everywhere in Europe makes your vision of a kind of more, co more coherent fiscal, monetary, you know, defense, foreign policy unit, union, much less likely, doesn't it? I, we never I, needed it more, and we're never, we've never been further away from it. I, I, don't, I don't agree. Well, first of all, no mainland European population has indicated in any majority that they wish to leave the European Union. Not even the Greeks, especially the Greeks, cling, as I've said, to Europe as a life raft. They have never been offered the solution uh, that I and others uh, are proposing. And if you look at the history, how do these unions happen? The prototypical union, which I've mentioned, which is the Anglo-Scottish Union, takes place between the English and the Scots, who hated each other then, don't greatly love each other now, as we, as, as we know, and yet have been for more than 300 years in a highly successful political union. You unite, you form a union, not with the people you love. This is not like some kind of process which culminates... Like in, a housing association. No, it's, yeah, it's, it, what, it, what a union, a political union, is a marriage. It's not a process. It's something you decide to do in one fell swoop. One day you're married, the next day you're not. One day you've got England and Scotland, the next day you've got the United Kingdom. And Europe will, the European Union, mainland European unity, will only happen as a single event, not as a process. Okay. Uh, we're going to try and get to all of your questions, but there are very many. There was a lady in the middle, and she's gone away now. Okay. The gentleman over here in the front. That's it. Okay. Okay, thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask, I wanted to take a slight issue with the point that was raised in terms of, if you say, we're the only ones sort of having this debate here in the UK, because what I can see and my concern is we're having a very narrow debate and the debate always seems to be about what is best for business, for big business, to some extent what is best for the economy, but even that I would argue within a very narrow framework, you know, the economy for who. What's the question? My question is, are we missing the point in asking remain or leave? As far as I can see, many of the problems of the economy and exploitation and wealth inequality, income inequality, you're not solving them inside the EU, you're not solving them outside of the EU. So are we missing the debate, actually, okay. here in the UK? Katarina, do you want to take that one? Um, yes, well, I think that's a very important point. And I would agree with you that there have been a lot of discussions in other European countries as well. But what we see is that not all discussions get similar amounts of attention as well. So if there are right-wing extremists on, on the street in Germany, that gets a lot more attention than people trying to think about the future of Europe. Um, I think we really have to think about that future and we should talk about what we want Europe to be and what we want uh, to do about social inequality on a regional, on a national and on a transnational level. Okay, Chris, you want to add briefly? I just wanted to throw a fact out there, which is always dangerous, but um, uh, I think it's worth it. The European Union is not a community of redistribution. Um, so the percentage of GDP that goes to the EU from the UK year on year is roughly 0.5%. Um, that's a, a very small amount. The main engines of redistribution that determine whether you have a good or a bad life, that shape questions of income distribution, um, it's still at the national level in Europe. So if you want to be prosperous, you're better off being born in a country like the UK or a country like Germany than a country like Portugal or a country like a lot of the southern European countries. That's still the decisive factor. The EU does not do a lot of, uh, of, of redistribution. Okay, thank you very much. Um, lady with the glasses. Um, two questions. Should Turkey join the EU? A. B. Will Turkey join the EU? Okay. Madi, why don't you take that one? Um, that's a very good question. Um, I think that um, 
I, I, my personal view is that I think it would be that Turkey should join the EU. Um, and my reason being is that um, we, um, we, we need to um, re rethink the values of, 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 of Europe and what, what it means to be European. Um, we live in a, um, a, a, different, a different world now. We have different um, migration flows and different refugee flows. Um, and um, at the moment, Turkey is, um, is struggling to be able to, uh, to accommodate. Um, and um, so I think um, if Turkey was within, within the EU, um, we would really be able to, to have a, a more uh, sustainable um, way of, um, of, of, of dealing with refugees um, and in, in an integrative way. What about President Erdogan and his unimpeachable democratic values? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I would say that we also need to have um, uh, not just a, a debate about um, the EU, but also a debate about what we mean about democracy. Mm. Um, and um, we, um, <laughs> without meaning to be too controversial, um, I think that uh, perhaps, perhaps we think that we have access to uh, a m more democracy than, in fact, we actually do. Um, and if we can rethink um, actually our, our relationship to democracy and what that actually means, then we might be able to see that um, we have more in common with who we perhaps see as being non-European than, um, than we profess. So, Brendan Sims, uh, we've had the German question. The, the EU exists to contain the German question. Do we want to have the Turkish question as well? Can, can the structure withhold that? Well, my answer to the lady's question will be not so much that it shouldn't, but that it won't, and for the following reason. The Turks... I think, certainly the Turkish government, looks at the European Union as a club. There's a club, you're not letting us in, we're being blackballed, you know, by the Cypriots or whatever. They don't understand. The European Union is not a club, or it shouldn't be. It is a destiny. It is a project. You enter this project and you change. So if the Turks are prepared to give up the Turkish army ultimately, to allow people to talk about the Armenian genocide, uh, to stop oppressing the Kurds, and so on and so forth, I would say, welcome. I'm convinced they have no intention of doing any of those things, were it made clear to them, as it is already being made clear. Mm. They won't come in, so the problem solves itself. Okay. Mm. All right. Lady over there. Could I ask the panel uh, what they would make of the stance of the Visegrad Four, in particular uh, Viktor Orban's recent statement saying... Uh, we don't want a liberal state, we want an illiberal state, and how to interpret that, perhaps in the light of what I certainly perhaps somewhat naively felt would be the result of the Velvet Revolutions and the fall of the communist regime in Eastern Europe, um, and in, the, in relation to their response to the European crisis and European values. Okay, Chris? Can I say something um, on this, which is, it's a very good question. Um, the European uh, enlargement process, uh, which uh, affected uh, a number of these Eastern European countries, is not a sort of a decision which is taken and then you just join. It is a fundamental process of state transformation. Now, it has important implications for the quality of democracy in those countries. The executives 
in applicant member states, the executives are considerably empowered because they are the principal interlocutors with the European Commission on questions of EU enlargement. They create these islands of excellence where all these qualified people come and work on the enlargement process in those applicant countries. Um, parliaments become reduced to just signing off a whole lot of European legislation without any discussion or any deliberation. So the quality of democracy, in my reading of the, the legacy of the EU's enlargement, is that it leaves these countries, members of the European Union, yes, uh, members of the single market, yes, with access to the single market, yes, but with a reshaped state where the state and society are really cut off from one another. The consequence is pretty obvious. You start to get a population being very disgruntled with its government, which seems so distant and seems much more interested in managing affairs within Europe than in managing its own country. And so you get this turn to a more illiberal form of politics, which we see in Hungary, we see in Poland, we see in other member states. The idea that somehow the EU is a solution to that illiberal form of politics gets it the, the wrong way around. The EU has a lot of responsibility in having created the basis for that illiberal politics in the first place. Is there anything that could have been done to, 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 to dilute that process, to kind of reconnect the state with society in those new democracies from Eastern Europe? I think it accurately reflects what the European Union is, which is a, um, a, a political institution that requires um, of governments a real transformation of their society. So I don't see how the enlargement process could have been done in a, in a light way to avoid some of these consequences. Okay. All right, Christian over there, gentleman with a jacket. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that the EU is incompatible with democracy. Um, does this matter? Wow. <laughs> That's not one you hear every day. Thank you very much. Who'd like to, Brendan? Yeah, it, it matters hugely um, because you can only do the jobs that the EU is trying to do through democratic structures. So what's made this country so strong is having the entire political nation unified in parliament behind the national debt, behind the defense. These are the combination defense, debt, democracy. They all go together. And in the European Union, at least in the Eurozone states, that's no longer the case. So what is therefore required is uh, at union level, representative institutions, a bit like the US House of Representatives and the Senate, which provide that democratic input. Otherwise, we end up running it in the way that uh, Chris Bickerton has described, as a confederation of governments, which, is a very, which means that effectively, the smaller and weaker states are no longer represented at all as opposed to being simply less represented through individual voters. So, our, for sake of example, Arkansas uh, is represented through the House of Representatives equally with anybody else, and probably more extensively uh, through the Senate because of the same level of representation across the Union. In Europe, it's the other way around. It's the biggest states which run everything. So this is, a huge, this is why we're in the mess we're in, because we don't have that democratic connection. Katerina, I'd like you to answer that question as well, especially in view of what you've been researching about German extremism. Uh, I think it's a really important question, and there is absolutely a lack of democracy. But the question is, why are we discussing that only in relation to Europe? I think there is a lack of democracy when it comes to a lot of structures. And then what is democracy, actually? Um, what kind of idea of uh, a government do we have? And I think, to what extent do we want to participate as citizens? And I think this is where, well, that's what I think, we have to use uh, the capacities and the possibilities that we have to affect the structures that we live in. And certainly nationalism cannot be the answer to a crisis of uh, Europe, because nationalism 
leads down a route that is very dangerous, and that is what we have seen in historical crises in Germany, and I think also in other European countries. Okay, um, next question. I'd like to ask the panel where they think Europe ends. My Ordnance Survey map of Europe extends to the Urals. And if you go south down the line of the Urals, you include Kazakhstan and Iran. And if you come west, you include Iraq and Syria and Turkey. But more to the point is that 11 of the last 28 states, of the existing 28 states, are ex-communist. And 11 of the next can only be communist. So isn't it time? that we realized that this is communism of Putin getting in by the back door, which is now I, actually the front door. I, I like your question when it started, and then went, went off slightly, <laughs> slightly beyond the Urals, if I may say so. But thank you very much. An interesting talking point. Um, Brendan, what is Europe? Can it be geographically defined, or is it a mirage of, of values and ideas? Well, there is a geographic definition of Europe, which, which we've just heard. I don't think it necessarily maps uh, the political definition, nor should it. So when we speak of political Europe, we would obviously exclude the Putin of uh, the Russia of Mr. Putin, even though a great deal of it is geographically part of, of Europe. It could include other areas which might accept um, European values, uh, say Turkey in the best possible world. Um, so I would regard political Europe a bit like the American Union of the 19th century. It simply advances. Um, for its own security and for its own uh, prosperity until it hits a particular buffer or just stops. I mean, I, I do think your question, your, your implications about Putin are very relevant and important. So let me just take that part of the question and give it to both, both well, anyone here on the panel, but Chris, you want to say something? I just wanted to say that it's all very clear in the, in the European Union's treaties, but it's clear in a way which is very much fudged. So the principle, the principle of membership is that the EU is open to any country that respects a long list of values that are set out in the EU's treaties, respect for human rights, etc. But it also says that must be a European state. So any European state can join, but it doesn't define what a European state should be. Um, but I have to say, talking to people working in the European Commission, I remember I asked somebody a few years ago, I said, when will the EU stop expanding? And this person pointed to a map on the wall, and he said, well, look, we have to fill in all the holes. Um, and it is true, when you look at a map of the European Union, it's a very curious map with lots of holes to be filled. Yeah. Essentially, yeah. So if you want geographical unity, then there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, but the treaties do not define what a European state is, which is the question everybody wants to, to ask. Is Putin a threat to the European Union? Yes or no? Maddie. Um, I, would say, I would say yes. And if we're... Um, asking the question about uh, democracy, and then also the point was raised about, um, about Turkey, and you said about uh, um, the army, um, then we also need to, to think about um, some of, uh, uh, some of the, the foreign policy that, uh, that Putin is engaged in, particularly in Syria, for instance. Okay, all right, where, where did the microphone wander next? Yes, lady over there, and then it's your turn. Yes, please. Hello. Um, you said that the institutions are secretive, but isn't that a state of affairs carefully managed by heads of state and government so that they can uh, get rid of their own responsibility? In the latest example, in the EU-Turkey deal, in the collective lie that Turkey can deal in a reasonable fashion with numbers of Syrian refugees. Katerina? 
Yes, I think, I think there is definitely a lot of cover-up, but there's also a lack of interest, unfortunately. If you look at the number of people who are actually participating in European elections, it's strikingly low. So I think it goes a bit both ways. We should get better information, but we should also demand it, and maybe then they would have to talk more openly about such proceedings. Okay. We literally have room for one more question. Gentleman over there with the glasses. Do we have a mic anywhere? Thank you. Coming up quickly. Okay. Thanks. Um, it, it kind of builds on the, the, the debate about the size of Europe. Given the concept that the, the future of Europe is better as a consolidated and more uh, unified whole, would it not have been better to stick with the original grouping of countries in Europe, get them into a, a structure which was made to work properly, and then gradual expansion rather than the both historical and future, or apparent future, expansion without any limits? Good question. Uh, given, given the uh, nature of, of Europe as it is. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot in, in what you say. My only caveat would be that, in fact, France, which is, of course, one of the original uh, members, uh, was always very clear that it wasn't going to be involved in any kind of supranational integration that involved the military. So the project of a European defence community, for example, uh, failed as a result of French opposition uh, in the 1950s. Um, and so once that had happened, it was actually clear that the original group, uh, which then later became uh, the, 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 those going in the Treaty of Rome, uh, that they weren't going to form any time soon a closer political union, and then it became easier to let in others, and then more difficult, as you say, to have greater political integration. But I think if that French problem had been sorted at the beginning, one could have moved from a, a smaller, tighter knot to a larger group in due course. Okay, very brief one from you. Sorry. Can I just build on what Brendan said? You've got to build on it really, because there are three do. letters flashing up, end of session, flash, flash, so, flash. So. Two quick sentences, and there's what we might call the Brexit fantasy, which is that if the UK leaves, all the countries that remain, which a lot of them are part of the core, will suddenly get on well with one another and make some leap forward into a, a supranational Europe. The disagreements will remain. The French and the Germans have massive disagreements on the future of the Eurozone, which they will not resolve whether or not the UK is a member or not. So no, I think this natural core may have existed back in the 50s. It does not exist anymore. There is no core to Europe anymore. Um, and that's part of the problems for its future. OK, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've run out of time. It has been incredibly engaging. Uh, thank you very much to our wonderful panel. <laughs> <laughs>